kiddos, welcome to Dad Feelings, the podcast about fictional father figures and real life dads with real feelings. Joining me this week is friend of the network and I would say fan favorite. Um, I don't think that is is uh, misstating the case. Author and podcaster, the host of the Imogen Watches Classic Films podcast, uh, Imogen Benny is my guest today. Hi. Hello. Hi. You know, <laughs> one thing about living in New York I never could stomach, uh-huh. all the damn podcasts. All the damn podcasts. <laughs> oh, man. I Did you like that? Did you like that reference I made to the film that we're discussing today, which is 1987's The Lost Boys? I did like that reference to it. It's it's an iconic line, right? Um, can I say the thing that you were telling me earlier? Yes. Um, you were just saying that you hadn't watched this movie before uh, today. And I feel so happy that you, you got to watch it because it's so wonderful. I believe your words were something like, it is extremely my shit. And I feel like it is extremely my shit too. Yes. On some level, I had been meaning to watch this movie for kind of a long time. Yeah. And this was a great excuse to finally get around to it because, um, oh, wow, this movie, it is a <laughs> lot. It is schlocky uh-huh. 80s horror. It is like just such a kind of period piece in terms of like outfits and slang. Uh-huh. It is kind of weirdly like homosocial hazing kind of stuff, uh-huh. um, like vaguely homoerotic. It yeah. is oh. also like a movie about a single mom who is trying uh-huh. to make it in a new city and maybe has a romance with some man who is actually the, the sort of impetus for us talking about this movie. Yes. Um, yeah, Max. So his name is Max. Um, and one thing which, like, I don't want to blow your mind straight out the gate if you didn't know this, um, or if you didn't notice this, but uh, Max, the the dad figure of the titular Lost Boys, um, played by the grandfather from the Gilmore Girls. What? Right? Oh, my God. I need to go... I need to go look that up. Is that, um, who is, who is that? Is that, <laughs> did you ever watch the Gilmore Girls? Is it less mind blowing? Cause you don't no, know that I character. did. Oh, Edward Herman. Right. What? That That's it. He doesn't look anything. He looks completely different. I, yeah, but now I can see it. Yep. Right. Totally. He's oh very my tall. God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. And also, okay, so if you haven't seen this film, first of all, go watch it. But second, so 87, like I said, you know, such a sort of time capsule in a lot of ways, but also like the cast list is just like Corey, you got your two Corys. You got your Corey Ham. This was the introduction of both Corys as a thing. Sorry, I just talked over you, but I'm so excited, Merritt. This was when the two Corys, I think, first worked together. Yeah, you've got... You've got Kiefer Sutherland uh-huh. in with, kind of a, this incredible role with this sort of like, oh, I don't know, almost Billy Idol, but uh-huh. really rough looking Billy Idol kind of thing going on. Yep, totally. With the little like blonde mullet. Yeah. It's unbelievable. On, on like a motorcycle dirt bike thing. It's truly, truly a wild ride uh, from beginning to end. It's got Alex Winter, who played uh, Bill in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure as a sexy vampire. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's next level. It's truly incredible. It's Um, incredible. It's got Diane West, who was in The Birdcage, who was in Edward Scissorhands, who was in Synecdoche, New York. uh Uh-huh. It's got Um, so many people. Are you just looking at the Wikipedia page of all the people? (laughs) Just a little bit. But, okay, let's... Let's talk about this film because um, obviously the title, The Lost Boys, is a reference to the Peter Pan stories. So that may seem obvious to you. I had been watching this movie for something like 20 years before I put together that there was a Peter Pan (laughs) thing going on. 
it's about like, boys who never grow up. Yeah, totally. No, I, I I see that now. I realized it about two weeks ago when I watched it <laughs> for my podcast. Despite the fact of like having had a framed poster of this movie up in my room, like during times in my life, just never thought about it. Just got too caught up in like the gothness of it, which does not feel that Peter Panny to me. You know mm, what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, some Peter Pan stuff for sure. Which I think is a good segue into talking about, well, I guess we probably, we might want to give more context, but I mean, the, the dad figure of those titular lost boys is the, the Peter Pan figure who is Max, who is, uh, Edward Herman. Is that what his name is in real life? Yes. Yeah. He's the, the Peter Pan figure, um, which does interesting stuff with like dadness, right? Like maybe it doesn't. I don't, I, you, so you see, so you see him as the Peter Pan figure in that he's kind of like their leader. Well, so he's kind of their leader, right? But what happens in Peter Pan is that Peter Pan wants Wendy to be the mom for him and the Lost Boys, right? Yes. Yeah. And what Max is doing. So should we back up or should we just, yeah, let's in? back up and just sort of give a synopsis of the film for people maybe who haven't seen it. Okay. Do you want me to do the synopsis? Please. Okay. So. Uh, it's funny because I did an episode about this on my podcast, which is me just talking about it for an hour. So I'll try not to talk about it for an hour. (laughs) Um, small family. So, uh, there's like a teenage guy and an adolescent guy and their mom leave Arizona and they move to, uh, Santa Cruz, California, which they call Santa Carla in the movie. Um, and they move in with her dad and it turns out there's vampires in the city and, the vampires take the the older brother like into sort of their fold and they turn him into a vampire and they're like scary and sexy and like just this like in kind of incredible like portrayal of the confusion of teenage sexuality for me. Um, and uh, we have adventures and then also you have... Corey Feldman and another dude whose name I can never remember. I think it's Jamie as these characters named the frog brothers who are like basically Corey Feldman doing every action hero from the eighties, but he's like 15. (laughs) And I mean, that's basically the plot, right? He becomes a vampire, but he doesn't want to be a vampire and he's conflicted about the morality of it. And he doesn't like, I don't know. It's hard to say how much is textual and how much is subtextual. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's this real, like, they're this family and the family is being torn apart by these, like, forces outside the family that are, like, these very sexual, like, teenage boys um, in a way that seems to be Michael sort of struggling with, uh, like, bisexual themes or Michael being the older, the older teenager. Um, and so should I just spoil the whole plot of the movie? Sure. Okay, so Kiefer Sutherland seems to be the head of these, like, four, like, total babe teenage boy vampires. Um, And when Michael decides that he doesn't want to be one of them, they're like, okay, well, then we're going to, like, kill you. And so the vampires come to their house to kill them. And they kill the vampires. And then they don't... So so Michael has sort of been turned into a vampire, but sort of not. And in order to turn back to not a vampire at all, they have to kill the head vampire. And he's like, I thought that was you, Kiefer Sutherland, but Kiefer Sutherland is dead. And he's like, I'm dead but you're still half a vampire so that's clearly wrong and then it turns out the whole time the the two like main teenage boys their mom has been dating this guy max who owns a video store on the boardwalk turns out max was the head vampire the whole time and so they have to kill max in order to not be vampires anymore um and so do you think that's a fair description yes yeah i think that's that's Totally fair. There is, there's a minor, there's a scene where you're sort of misdirected, like you're led to believe that Max is the, uh, the head vampire early on. Right. And then he's invited into their home in this incredible scene where, yep. uh, Michael opens the door and, uh, Max is just like, well, you're the man of the house. So I won't come in unless you can say I can. And uh, he's like, yeah, you're invited. And he's just like, and you're like, oh, no. Yep. Um, but then they do all these tests. And it seems like, you know, he eats garlic. He has a reflection. Uh-huh. Holy, water holy water doesn't water him. burn him. Yeah. And, um, and they're like, oh, I guess it wasn't him. It must be David or it must be one of those other boys. And so they go to try and kill some of them. And then, yeah, like you say, they're all dead. And the Max shows up and is like, 
oh, and he's like apologizing to the mom, like, you know what? This is all my fault. My boys just got a little too rowdy. And, uh, you know, all I wanted, like, I just wanted you to, we could just be a family together, like a blended vampire human family, except all vampires. But, you know, like my boys and your boys and, and you'd be the mom because boys need a mom. They need discipline. Um, Uh and then he's still like, you know what, but still like, I still want you and like be my vampire bride. And, uh, then the, uh, the grandpa who they've been living with drives a truck, um, just covered in stakes through the wall yep. of his own home and, uh, and kills Max <laughs> with yep. his truck. Giant, enormous, like 10 foot long stakes. <laughs> and then says that line, which I, uh, paraphrased in the opening to this show, um, as he gets a root beer out of the fridge in sort of nonchalantly, um, mm-hmm. which is the final line in the film, which is incredible. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of like a, the villain of this this film is like the the arch villain behind the scenes is this older man who is like has this job like he's he's mm-hmm. like a vampire but he's living in plain sight like he's not the other vampires are sort of it's implied that they uh don't go really go out during the day and well i guess he doesn't either but they sort of just spend their time like causing shit and like they're they're lost boys. They're just running around having stupid adventures, jumping off bridges and getting into yep. fights. Yep. With surf Nazis. With surf Nazis. <laughs> they fight surf Nazis. Not that I've gone way down the rabbit hole on this movie, but if you read the script, the people that they kill on the beach while Run DMC and Aerosmith's collaboration on Walk This Way plays are surf Nazis. And also in the open scene, there are surf Nazis on a merry-go-round who the titular lost boys also choose to fight with. Oh, my God. So like, I love them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I also say, backing up a little bit, your impression of Max when he said, well, you're the man of the house and I won't come in unless you invite me. <laughs> that impression was spot on. Thank very you. Impre- Thank you. Yeah. This movie made quite an impression on me. To uh, That wasn't intentional. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an odd horror movie in that the pacing is is unusual, it seems to me. Um, there's a lot of like time skips it's not really clear how much time has passed uh-huh. since Michael has like become a half vampire. Um, the the sort of like classic trapped in the house with the monster moment doesn't happen until like the last quarter of the movie, really. Um, uh-huh. When they're sort of running around the house trying to kill all the vampires and not get killed by them. Um, and so the yeah. structure is, is it's like not a pure horror movie, right? It's kind of like a teen kind of coming of age movie kind of a horror movie totally and so apparently the history of this movie is that initially they were just trying to to rip off goonies they were going to do goonies (laughs) but with vampires that makes total sense right it like it doesn't feel like that in the finished product but like as its roots i feel like you can see that um and I think Joel Schumacher, who directed it, and who I believe went on to direct the Batman movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and a bunch of other that stuff. That sounds right, um, yeah. But, like, this movie doesn't feel like that either. Like, this, I mean, it's, like, goofy, like, the scene with the guy with the saxophone at the beach who's playing is, like, <laughs> silly, but, like, in a really different way. You know what I mean? Like, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger saying goofy jokes. It's, like, even when it's so dorky, it's just so good, Merritt. I can't deal with how awesome even that song is. Um, but yeah, apparently they were just trying to rip off Goonies and Joel Schumacher got there and he was like, this is dumb. Like, let's make them older. Um, and it worked and it wound up like, I guess the idea. So the vampires, they just look like normal people until they like vamp out and then they turn monstrous. And I guess, uh, Josh Weeder, who did Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, Josh was like, he said that that was a big influence on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like that's where they got the idea for that yeah, show of vampires yeah. sort of turning from regular people into monsters. I feel like somebody else said that this was a big influence on what they did. But anyway, yeah. Um, this movie, like, you know, today the idea of like sexy teen vampires is kind of blase. Like that's mm-hmm. um, been around, like it's been everywhere for like at least 15 years. Um, yep. But when this movie was released that wasn't really a thing vampires were kind of like old like they're i mean 
not to like you know paint with too broad a brush but like they were kind of like Nosferatu or like Dracula like maybe kind of seductive and sexy but in this sort of like older man like vaguely European threatening kind of way um they weren't like running around having like idiot adventures um and (laughs) so this is really the precursor to like the vampire era of the 2000s um of the sexy vampire like this is sort of the the origin totally it's a thing and i just remembered we were talking about the structure as like a non-standard horror structure um and then i sort of went off about things that i like but um yeah they totally like this movie apparently was ground zero like i guess fright night came out the year before and was kind of a thing but it wasn't as like i don't know this movie like glistens it wasn't like as like powerful as this one and so this one really wound up laying the groundwork for a lot of how we think of sexy teen vampires um but yeah there's a piece for me too that's about like like for me really so much of the energy of the plot it's it's like barely contained it's much more about like the sexual tension between michael and david michael the like older son yes, of the family and david yes. the head vampire and like Michael and Star, who is the, like, female love interest in the movie. Um, And, like, Star and David seem to have a thing that they're doing. So it's this very, like, like, it doesn't scan as queer to me. They all scan as, like, I guess David kind of scans as queer to me a little bit. Um, I guess I don't want to, like, go too deep into attributing sexualities to anybody. But just to kind of reiterate, right, like, just the kind of, sexual confusion and the idea of like that same gender attraction being scary feels like it really resonated to me with a sense of like just how scary sexuality can be when you're a teenager. Um, and, and it's sort of going on like David is super playing like cat and mouse with Michael in this way. That's like really, um, uh, what's the word? Like, I don't want to be like really hot or like really taut, but it's, it's, it's compelling. And David is sort of swept up in this thing. Like it's it, right. Like it's not like, yeah, there is like this, there's this kind of like eroticism in those scenes. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of like, like Michael, if you're looking at it from like a purely dispassionate, like rational point of view, like Michael has no reason to be like following these guys around, like other than that, right. he's interested in star, but like, like it, you know, they're like playing pranks on him and like making him like eat, like noodles which look like which they turn into worms <laughs> with magic or something yeah and then like they never explore again <laughs> and then like giving him like wine to drink which is like clearly like blood like david's blood like um except you know what it's max's blood isn't it i think it is max's blood yeah it's max's blood yeah so there's like a lot like it's kind of like it, it's kind of dreamlike and sort of he's just like following yeah. it around because um he's not really sure what is happening or like why he's doing it. Right. And I think that's where you get this sort of like teenage confusion um kind of feel from the film. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um and like it does follow a sort of like I always think of it as a Blair Witch thing, mm. um, where the nights are scary and the days are not scary, um, and so like they spend a lot of the days like prepping or like they go down into the like hotel that fell in a crack in an earthquake where the vampires live um, during the day to try to kill them, um, and then at nighttime like the vampires either are like out partying with Michael or they're like trying to kill Michael and Sam in their house, right? Like I don't know, like that does feel like a horror movie structure to me, but the tension is, I mean, the tension is kind of, are they going to kill everybody? But it's a lot more like, not that, you know what I mean? Like it's a danger, but it's not like, like it's not a horror movie in the sense of like, these vampires are going to kill us. So we have to uh, kill them first. Yeah. As much yeah. As, like, I mean, like I understand the structure, I mean, not being an expert at all, but I understand like one of the main structures of the horror movie being like, we are stuck in, this confined space with this thing that is um, going to kill us and it's sort of picking people off one by one. Um, Right. And that isn't really the main threat in this movie right up until the end. The threat is much more what is happening to Michael and like, right. How is like, it's much more like sort of these personal consequences that um, are, are 
aren't about is he going to be killed or are other people going to be killed? It's like, is he going to be like sort of swayed into this like weird kind of seductive uh, life? Right. And like the, the murder stuff that happens is mostly the vampires killing like surf Nazis, right? Like <laughs> it's like scary to think it like Michael ostensibly has this conflict about conflict about like you're, you're, what does he say? Like I made you immortal. And Michael's like, you made me a killer. Um, <laughs> yeah. That line is delivered so awkwardly. And then David just sort of looks at him and is just like, you are a killer. Yep, totally. But like the killing stuff feels a little bit like you're killing jerks. Like that's not, that doesn't feel like the central. Yeah. I mean, it's not like if they wanted to make that the central conflict, it would be, he was killing his, he was like trying to kill his little brother or something, but like that, that's sort of, that that comes up a little bit, but, uh, but it's not really like, yeah, the central tension there. Right. Um, right. Like he, he finds himself like uh, compelled to kill his brother, but his brother's dog rescues him. And from then on, you know that like, okay, this isn't the threat anymore. Michael's not going to kill Sam. Um, did you pick up on how much it is like how heavily it's implied that Sam, the younger brother played by Corey Haim is gay? Oh my God. No, okay. no, please go on. So Michael feels like he's like conflicted about this stuff. Right. Um, But Sam. So one of the iconic scenes is when he's in the bathtub and he's like slipping up his hair and he's like singing along Uh, to this like old kind of soul record um, about not having a man. But there's (laughs) another scene where he's in his room and he's got this this poster of Rob Lowe on the front, (laughs) like the door of his closet. And Rob Lowe is like pulling up his shirt so you can see his belly. Um, And his mom comes in the room and she has this, they have this talk where she's like, you know, one of the things I never got, or like one of the reasons I knew I could never be with your father is that he didn't believe in the closet monster because he's asking (gasps) her to close the closet. Right. And so she closes the closet and then the grandfather, the grandfather comes in with a fucking fucking taxidermied beaver, which is a slang term for vagina. (laughs) And they like make he puts the the taxidermy beaver into the closet behind the poster of rob lowe with his belly showing um (laughs) oh my god yeah you're getting in the deep subtext here yeah i'm glad that we're talking about all the dad feelings that this movie gave us yeah wow well because the thing is like they their dad is is out of the picture um right totally yeah and so they have this grandfather who is a sort of this like weird guy who just like mm-hmm. reads TV guides, but doesn't have a TV and right. is going on dates with this, like this widow, widow and, Johnson. Uh, widow Johnson, <laughs> and apparently knows their vampires and like declines to tell any of them about this uh, <laughs> because, you know, you wouldn't want to worry anyone um, yeah. <laughs> by letting them know about the vampires. Um yeah, and then so like Max. Max is the yeah. villain and he is it's interesting to me because like you know, it's okay, he's the villain cuz he's like a vampire and he wants to turn their family into vampires, but like uh-huh. his motivation, like you say, he is kind of like the Peter Pan figure and like his motivation <laughs> isn't like he wants to kill them and eat them or like make them his vampire slaves. Like he wants right. to have an immortal vampire family mm-hmm. and it's, he is like the most normative person in the film. Right. Like even totally. the mom is like divorced. It seems kind of quirky, has short hair. Um, and Max is just like, the like soul sort of like i mean he is kind of this peter pan figure in that he he is seeking this like this mom for his lost boys but like he is the most normal person in the movie yeah which is it's an interesting inversion and i feel like there's also a thing where he dresses very much like sam the the cory Haim character i feel like mm. they both have like beige blazers with their like sleeves rolled up to their forearms uh-huh. yeah in a way that like i'm not sure what exactly that parallel is but i mean i think it's true right and i i feel like i haven't quite parsed it all out like i don't feel like i have a theory of the structure of how all this stuff adds up um but i mean he he i don't know what do you think about the fact that he's the most like normative character in the movie probably 
I think it's interesting, um, given that we've been talking about how like a lot of the tensions are about teenage confusion and like without reading too much and like without sort of digging too deep into subtext or putting too much on certain readings, like it, it, there is this sort of like confused sexual tension permeating like the first half of the film. Yeah. Um, And Max is almost coming in and being like, like, no, I like, like I, I'm a, I'm an immortal vampire who can never Mm -hmm. die and could do anything he wants. And what I am doing with my unlife is I am running a video store on the boardwalk and I'm looking for (laughs) a wife and a mother. Yeah. Like it's such an odd thing, but like in the context of the film, it makes total sense to me that the antagonist is someone who is like trying to impose this like, heteronormative (laughs) yeah Yeah, paradigm on everyone i think that makes sense i buy that because like one of the things that is frustrating for me about the movie i mean it's not frustrating i don't feel mad about it because i feel like if they did it any other way it would be weird but one of the things is that it's necessarily a story of michael choosing like to be heterosexual or to be in a heterosexual relationship with star Um, by like killing the representatives of all his confused teenage sexuality feelings, or maybe confused is the wrong word, but confusing. I don't know. Um, and so that's sort of the bummer for me, right? Is like that the, the story is a story of the reinstatement of heterosexuality. Um, but it's interesting to contrast that, right? With like the actual evil is this most like heterosexual person in the whole movie, the most sort of heteronormative, like square dude really is the like big bad here right so in a sense that actually almost redeems the other plot for me mm. does that make sense like kind of makes the movie's perspective then be like michael like chooses to be with the girl but i don't know maybe it doesn't add up <laughs> well it's it's interesting because like um in that that's the final scene where max reveals himself and is like no i like Lucy, I still want you. Um, then he like pulls out his hand to her and I don't know, like this is as IMDB. So like the quotes aren't from the <laughs> script, but it says uh-huh. like, um, you know, Sam is shouting like, mom, don't do it. And, uh, it says Lucy reluctantly decides to abandon her humanity by taking Max's hand. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, because she is about to do it. And that's when her father drives the steak truck through the wall and murders <laughs> the truck Max. that says Deus Ex Machina on the side of it. It's like <laughs> letters. Yeah, but um, one thing that I, I realized there's a quote when um, early on in the film, when uh, Michael and Sam, like when when they all get to their grandfather's house, Michael like goes into their grandfather has like this workroom, I guess. And Michael I think says it's his taxidermy his room. taxidermy room. And Michael says, so. like, whoa, talk about the Texas chainsaw massacre. And uh, <laughs> uh-huh. it occurs to me that that is another horror film that has some themes around family. Um, oh, yeah. There, the Sawyer family is kind of this parody of like a sitcom family. Uh-huh. Um, in the, the, the dinner scene in that film. And I'm wondering, you know, as someone who I would say is an expert on horror films, um, what do you think, like, what is, what are some of the roles that fathers tend to play in those films? Oh man. So counterpoint, I've never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and so therefore may not be the best expert to talk about this. And I probably should have been thinking about this in advance. Um, Let's see. I'm going to blank because I'm going to freak out because I'm being recorded. What horror movies do I even know that are in this Well, like, what about the classics? Like, are there fathers in things like Halloween or um, Nightmare on Elm Street or um, Friday the 13th? Useless. Like, in all (laughs) all the, like, slasher stuff. They're either a cop or they're completely absent. Okay. um, Is, like, the theme... um, or like a, a kind of a consistent thing. Um, man, 
dads in horror movies. I really feel like I should have prepped for that. Um, Halloween. I feel like I know less about like classic stuff and more about sort of ephemera or like trash like this. Yeah. I'm just trying to think about Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are like almost always about teenagers. Friday the 13th, there's like an important mom in those. But the dads, I think the dads are usually cops, which I feel like is like such a like a bundling of patriarchal roles, you know, yes, like a kind of yeah. patriarchal. Um what other movies? I'm well, so thinking. So can I read you some off of this list of 25 yeah, greatest it. horror movie dads from okay. a website called <laughs> JarvisCity.com? Ooh, that sounds nice. Okay. Well, in 2007, there was a film called The Mist, um, which I think oh, yeah. is an adaptation of a Stephen King, or is that it's, just... Yeah, okay. And so yeah. sort of the big dad thing in that film is that, um, you know, it's, it's a city that's cut off from... Um, the rest of the world there's this monster that's killing people and they're trying to get out and they run out of gas and the dad is basically just like uh, uh let's just kill ourselves with this gun that we have um, right and he spoilers i guess shoots the other adults and then shoots his son and then walks out in the mist because there are no more bullets and then it turns out that everything is fine <laughs> yeah yeah. So, like, the dad who has to sort of do, like, that's sort of maybe an extreme, but, like, the you know, I think a lot of films, like, an easy way for them to incorporate fathers is as the protective figure. And, you know, uh-huh. in, like, um, I've been reading the book Save the Cat, which, you know, has issues and isn't perfect, but yeah. it talks about uh-huh. how, like, the some of the most primal things that movie producers use to sort of draw audiences in is to use like familial ties because for the assumed audience those resonate more than other ones the assumed audience Uh of straight people um and uh having so having a father with like his kids threatened um is like a really powerful thing and i think probably something that happens in in other horror films yeah i bet that's a zombie movie thing i'm also thinking Mm. um did you read men women and chainsaws no um, I feel like she, the writer of that movie, it's kind of like um, film studies classic on horror movie stuff. It's really good, actually. It's worth reading. She was the one who sort of um, did the iconic reading of the female hero in Slasher, the final girl, I think was her like contribution of this idea of the final girl. Mm. Um, I, like, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm a little bit stuck on just thinking about the absence of fathers in a lot of Slasher movies. Oh, yeah. Um because I think that actually is really interesting, right? Like either the dad is gone or he's irrelevant or, or else he's a cop. It's like really committing in one direction (laughs) or the other. You know what I mean? And often like the cops are useless in slasher movies too. So you do wind up with just like more useless fathers. Um, Thinking about how the, like the dad in Arizona is not present in the lost boys too. Um, I mean, that to me feels consistent with this sense of like teenage being adrift without the guidance of any adults that's mm. going on in the lost boys. You know what I mean? Like we're sort of trying to figure this shit out, but it's terrifying. Uh-huh. Um, what else? I don't know. I'm coming up dry merit. I feel like I'm doing, I'm failing <laughs> you on like horror movie dads. I'm like, what movies do I love? I'm like, okay, there's no dads in Cloverfield. Um, I mean, in clo in, um, Cloverfield Lane, there is a like a paternalistic patriarchal figure. Yeah, I hate that movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like I love that series, and I watched the new one that came out, and it was great. But Ten Cloverfield Lane wasn't fun for me because it was about that. Like, oh man, this actually is consistent. I think with what we're saying, it wasn't fun because the threat of gendered violence was like one of the main things that like made the plot move in that mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. In a way that just like isn't fun to sit with, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, totally understand. And so, like my my series growing up was totally the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, right? And that one almost always winds up having a female protagonist, and kind of the adults are useless. Mm-hmm. And um, just thinking about identification in that process, the essay from Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, I probably couldn't recite all of her points from memory, but it's all about sort of identifying with the tomboy hero in a way that like invites like male 
identifying people or whatever in mm-hmm. um while still sort of identifying with them uh i'm not doing a great job of explaining that theory either <laughs> i guess my point is just like one of the reasons that I, I got totally sucked into like the nightmare on elf street movies and those things and kind of horror became a thing that i care about a lot i think was just the fact that they were movies about women you yeah, know what I mean? yeah in a way that didn't feel like I had to be ashamed of caring about, like I think the trashiness or like the sort of disreputable nature of horror as a genre meant that it was okay for me to, to like on like a safer level than something like, uh, what was, what was in the media at the time? Steel Magnolias, something like that. (laughs) You know what I mean? I totally understand. And I think maybe that's why I don't care about zombie stuff because mm-hmm. so much zombie stuff, like so, so, so much zombie stuff from films to books to even like video games, like the last of us is about man protecting small or like small girl or woman who like can't do anything for themselves. And I'm right. sure shows like the walking dead subvert that. And like, I've never seen that show. So I, I don't I've tried really to watch care, that a bunch of times, but it's just not my thing either. No, unless it was just the Jeffrey Dean Morgan show. I like that's the only reason <laughs> I would watch it. Um I don't know who that is, but I I support that. Uh leather jacket, big beard. Um Okay, cool. Yeah. Got it. Uh he's the dad in Supernatural as well. Um oh, man, people love that show and have tattoos of it, but I've never <laughs> seen it. Before. Yeah, no, I at some point I'll need to do an episode on that probably. But um cool. Yeah, I think that's maybe one reason. I mean, I'm not big into horror movies, but I think that is one reason why I'm not into zombie movies because they always seem like that. They're like um, an occasion for, you know, it's sort of, I feel like the setup for so many of those and maybe post-apocalyptic films in general is like, Uh, oh, a man can't rely on society anymore. He can only rely on, on himself to protect his family. Yep, totally. And I feel like a thing that you often get in zombie movies is like, who are the real monsters? It's people. And I'm like, <laughs> no, it's Freddy Krueger. <laughs> it's it's the people. monsters. It's the <laughs> man with scissor fingers who's going into children's dreams and killing them. Clearly. Right. Were you That's not watching the, the movie? Not <laughs> <laughs> the teenagers who got killed. Yeah. Oh, man. I feel like we're doing therapy here. This is great. Like, why do I care about horror? And why do I not know, like, any of the iconic horror stuff? It's because... Yeah, the trashier stuff. And like, I mean, you know, and the Lost Boys too, like, it, it's just doing a different thing than I think. Like, now I'm sort of in my head dividing stuff into like dude horror and not dude horror, which is <laughs> not super fair. But, oh man, I've got to go write 10,000 words about this right now. Please. Uh, <laughs> oh God, what? I just realized I've never done an episode on The Shining. Oh, oh, there's an iconic dad in that, huh? Oh, absolutely. Oh, man. Is that, is the Shining Dude horror? Ooh, I think it straddles the line. I think it's, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's. it's... I mean, yeah, (laughs) we're both like, hmm, uh, hmm, hmm. It's interesting because threat of gendered violence is totally a thing that animates the plot of that movie, but it doesn't feel as gross, I think. Maybe I should rewatch it and see, but it doesn't feel as gross as like 10 Cloverfield Lane, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think it leans, mm-hmm. if you're if you're sort of charting it out on a spectrum, I think it is more of a, a, dude, a dude horror movie. Uh... <laughs> Do I hear a smirk in your, in your voice because we're... <laughs> creating arbitrary categories that we're going to get in trouble for i love no i just love create visualizing the spectrums that are like yeah horror movies dude lady and then the other spectrum <laughs> is like uh, i don't know supernatural not or something maybe <laughs> totally yeah it's like a it's like an x y and a z axis yeah 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 but um yeah i don't know like the the idea of like the vampire dad is um mm-hmm. i feel like it it was um, sort of reappropriated or, or sort of reused by Buffy a few times. Um, mm-hmm. maybe just the one time season one, the villain, the master, is oh, yeah. kind of well. He's sort of this the trope of like the scheming, gnarly dude. Uh, he's got kind of a Palpatine vibe to him. He's also sort of mm-hmm. got like a Nosferatu vibe, but he is kind of like he talks about his family quite a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. and then like, 
if we're talking other horror dads who are very like normative and sort of that is part of their menace, I think the mayor from Buffy is like totally the, a huge example that came after this film. So can I just say that uh, my partner Alex and I have been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and we're on season three right now and I've never actually watched the whole thing all the way through. <gasps> I've seen like some important episodes like Hush. Do you know that? You probably know that I've one. Seen, yeah, I've seen every episode of the show okay. a few cool. times. So we're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, it, it's like my one of my, my trash college things. Um, uh-huh. So you've never seen it. Um, I mean, like I've seen some of them, but yeah, we've been working our way through it from the beginning um, and we're on season three right now. So I know kind of about the mayor, but I'm, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know. But you, you know that he is just this, uh, very sweet and like the very traditional, uh, dude. And, um, yeah, (laughs) when we first meet him, he's like washing his hands, right? Isn't that like the iconic mayor thing? Yep. Yep. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. That is an interesting trope to me. And I feel like this is, you know, it's not like it is not a huge part of animating this film because Max is sort of just in the background for most of it. But Right. But like it is sort of the bones that a lot of this plot sits on right, or like rests on. Um, And now I'm wondering, like, if Max had gotten what he wanted, right, he would have like his four lost boys and he'd be married to Lucy and he would have her two sons. And so they would have this family. And then is Lucy supposed to be this like kind of um, maternal figure who makes them all behave better and therefore more (laughs) like Max and therefore like less kind of sexy and interesting? Like, what would that even be like? Like, what is Max's goal beyond having a family? Does he even know? That's what's interesting to me, because like, as far as like writing motivations for characters like (laughs) Uh giving characters supernatural powers i think is tricky because then suddenly like motivations become very different because if you are an immortal super being who can't Mm -hmm. go out during the day like so this is to sort of step back for a second this is why i'm not actually a big fan of the buffy lore where when you die like a vampire is like a human body and memories basically piloted by a demon that sort of assumes Mm. their identity. And so vampires don't have souls. Um, I feel like that's pretty unnecessary because I feel like the idea of vampires are kind of, it's kind of like, um, do you know this, like this thing from, uh, this is really fucking dorky. Uh, from from Plato, the idea of like Gage's ring, um, or Gage's and, and the ring or whatever. Uh, let me just, just check so I don't sound okay. So the ring of Gages is like okay. in one of the Plato dialogues. Um, basically they, they talk about like virtue, right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, imagine you had two men. One was like extremely virtuous and the other one was like super awful and terrible. And like, uh-huh. if you gave them both rings that let them turn invisible, they would become indistinguishable. Um, because morality is a social construction and the, you know, the, the, uh, base of morality is the desire to like maintain your reputation for virtue and justice. Um, so to me, like that is, it's much more interesting if like a vampire or like vampirism is that we're basically just like, Oh, you're better. Like you're not human you would naturally come to see yourself as like different and better and you'd have to work against those feelings of being superior um Uh because you don't die and you uh, have superpowers in buffy they're just like oh uh they have no souls so they're inherently evil (laughs) and they need they like basically are robots that need to cause pain um but yeah in the lost boys like it's just like max is a vampire and like Uh his goals aren't like his goals are just very normal, like very like sitcom single dad. Yeah, yeah. It's like what would happen if, if he got his goals is that the sequel would be like a family comedy, like uh-huh. his, oh, like their though. in-laws are coming to town or something and <laughs> they have yeah. to like hide the fact that they're all vampires. Uh huh. It's totally. the birdcage, but vampires. It's the birdcage, but vampires. I would watch the shit out of that. Night. <laughs> I would love that movie. <laughs> Um, so there have been sequels and there were talk of other kinds of sequels. Actually, do you know about Mm, this? No. Um, 
I don't either. I haven't seen the sequels. Apparently there were two. Apparently they were trying to get The Lost Girls made for a while. I don't know if that ever happened. Then there's another one called The Lost Boys, colon, The Tribe, which I don't know anything about. And maybe then The Lost Girls did happen. But more interesting is that Joel Schumacher, the director, his initial plan, which I guess they've asked the folks who are involved in this movie about, he was like, I want to do a prequel that's set in like 1910. So one of the things... (laughs) One of the things in the movie is that the 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 lost boys themselves, they live in this hotel that's fallen into a crack in the earth yes, during yes. A, an earthquake in like 1910 or something um, with their like big Jim Morrison poster on the wall. Um, and he wanted to set it like before that earthquake, probably culminating in that earthquake. And they were going to do like a stinger during the credits of the original Lost Boys movie where like everything kind of ended the same way that it did, but then you scan and like they kind of scan around and they show a mural and it's Max in like 1910. Oh my God. Like a boater kind of implying that that's where we're going next. Like a boater hat. Is that what that's called? The straw hat. Um, And it was going to be about how he turns the lost boys. Like his like meeting with them. Um, I also would watch the shit out of that movie. Like that sounds (laughs) unbelievable to me. But I think they all sort of like lost interest and it just never wound up happening. But um, like one of the questions that I I sort of worry about is like, how did Max decide to turn these four like teenage boys into vampires? And is there like kind of gross stuff there that I don't want to think about? Um, But since we don't know, we don't have to assume that. But I feel like that is sort of a difficult question. Another ethical question raised by this movie is what the fuck is going on with Laddie? Yes, the child (laughs) vampire. The child vamp, like they just do not engage with that ethical question at all. <laughs> he is like, there for no reason except to turn into a scary vampire child at one point. Yep, yep, yeah, and like, and for Star to take care of in a maternal way, right? Like, they're sort of, in a sense, the Lost Boys, like David and Star and Laddie, are recreating the family that I think maybe Max wants to be creating too. Like, they're also creating this sort of heterosexual family structure, or like para heterosexual family structure but again like that's weird when it's a kid um i don't think i have an answer for that yeah no it was just weird it's yeah, just weird. It weird um thank you for telling me that story about plato and the ring oh you're super welcome i'm glad to put my poli sci specialization <laughs> in college to use and yeah ha- having to sit through political theory for a year yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, Do we have more things to talk about? I feel like I'm, that's all I got. Yeah, no, I think I'm tapped out. And we've this is a longer than usual episode for us. So um, we, can, we can trim some of the fat if we want to. <laughs> like in, in we'll Pro-Pro. cut out that whole thing about Glaucon and the rings. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, it's Glaucon of the rings is um, the whole story of that is that there are these golden rings. And as long as you're holding at least one, you can't die. And But when you get hit by anything like a robot, you do drop all of them. Uh, so oh, that, that's like, the story uh, of Sonic and the rings. Yeah, totally. Yeah, really and that's is. from Plato. Interesting. Um, just like the Matrix, Plato fold, foretold uh-huh. the Matrix and also Sonic the Hedgehog. Yep. Accurate. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, before we go too much further off the rails, um, uh-huh. yeah, we'll wrap things up there. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for suggesting this film, because I am so glad to have seen it now. Yeah, I'm so glad that you liked it. I feel like it's so good. Um, so, yeah, so thanks for having me on to talk about it. You're super welcome. Do you want to tell people about your podcast? Um, about my podcast? Uh, yeah, my podcast is called Imogen Watches Classic Films. Um, it started out when I had just finished grad school and I was suddenly like, I don't have the weight of like this like crushing weight of obligation on my back anymore. So I need to create an obligation for myself. And so I started recording a podcast in the car and trying to do one every week. Um, and it just got weirder and weirder as it's gone on. And I kind of um, just watch classic films and talk about them. It's people, people like it. Okay. It's like, it's a good podcast. Pretty good. 
Yeah. And then also um, my partner, Alex, and I, who I was mentioning, because we were watching the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer show, um, we're actually working on a podcast about Bob's Burgers, um, who I think Bob was uh, a dad on Dad Feelings earlier. And I was kind of mad because I was like, oh, I could have done that dad. Like, that's the dad <laughs> that I know something about. I am sorry. I'm sorry about that. But I'm really yeah, excited no, that you're doing a Bob's Burgers show. Yeah, totally. I know we're way over too, but I also just want to say I could have very much done one about Calvin's dad. I had a period about a year ago (laughs) and I was really identifying with Calvin's dad. And I was like, I'm going to email Mara and see if she'll have me on dad feelings. Ah, fuck. So (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm glad we finally found something. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah, so in conclusion, uh, we'll have a podcast out me and Alex, um, probably soon too. It'll be easy to find. Amazing. Well, yeah. Thank you again. And trying to think, is there a good line that I can close this one off on? Oh, man. Um, Maybe like a Frog Brothers one? Maybe. Ouch, my hair. <laughs> Did somebody say that? Grandpa says that, apparently. Oh, he does. Uh, yeah. Instead um, of saying a line, I'm going to encourage everyone listening to this podcast to go watch all of the lines in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. Well, here's one. Okay. How much do you think we should charge them for this? <laughs> this being either killing a bunch of vampires or this episode of the podcast. <laughs> well, that's it for this podcast. The episode is done. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, I will I will see all of you listeners next week. Bye, kiddos. Dad feelings is hosted by Merrick K produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Dad Feelings is a part of Stay Me, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Me at dadfeelings.com support. Our theme music is Swell Content by Speedy Ortiz off their album Foiled Deer. Thanks to Car Park Records and Sadie Dupuis for letting us use it. Please mention us on Twitter, we're at DadFeelings and at StayMeanCo. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.